Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hey, good morning, John, and good morning to our listeners. Welcome back to another installment of the yet unnamed John and Frank show. We are uh, we are currently searching for a title. Hopefully, we'll have one soon. Uh, if you have any great ideas, uh, I'd invite you to email them to John or me. In the interim, we are here to talk about uh, wildfire smoke and um, and how federal OSHA addresses those issues. Wildfire smoke is a big problem right now. Watching the news reports, you know, Canada has the biggest wildfire problem they've ever had in their country's history, um, at least recorded history. You know, we have a low front sitting off the East Coast that has the smoke kind of parked in the uh, sort of Northeast area. My understanding is that, you know, there's the potential for a little bit of weather movement and you know, that smoke may be kind of funneling down into the Midwest and into our part of the world. But one way or the other, particularly for folks that are working outdoors, this is a health concern. And if you have people who are doing work outdoors, where there's a health concern, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, probably is going to have some advice about that. You're right. Uh, OSHA, while OSHA, federal OSHA doesn't have a, a standard uh, that has specific requirements with regard to wildfire smoke, as you know, certain states do, California, Oregon, Washington, they all have specific standards and our colleagues in, in California have, a, have addressed that in webinars and other publications and are continuing to update th- that information. But with regard to federal OSHA, uh, federal OSHA still has an interest in employers protecting their employees from hazards. And OSHA has identified wildfire smoke and wildfires themselves, as a matter of fact, as potential hazards for employees. You know, I lived down in Austin when we had all those big fires moving through Austin. And and while you always think about wildfires is for, at least I always think about wildfires as forest fires. When we were living down in Austin, we were having a lot of, a lot of fires that were uh, encroaching on businesses and homes uh, and actually destroying businesses and homes that, that required a response. And while our focus today will primarily be on smoke and how to respond in the event that you're, you're getting these um, inhalation hazards or, or airborne hazards, there's still a preparedness section that OSHA expects employers to go through in anticipation of what happens if there's actual wildfire in the area that's more than just smoke. And that starts with the evacuation plan uh, on OSHA's website where they talk about an emergency action plan. Uh, And for those of you who are initiated know that there is a federal standard for an emergency action plan under 29 CFR 1910.38. And it goes into the details of what a good evacuation plan should include, uh, according to OSHA. Now, Frank, let me interrupt you there for a second. So, and and maybe, you know, kind of change the description a little bit. Obviously, we've got some concerns about 
wildfire smoke. Um, obviously, there's an issue relative to the inhalation piece. But what you're ultimately also saying is, is where there's smoke, and I'm not trying to be cute about this, there can be fire. <laughs> Look, you're talking about 2011 when Texas was going through massive wildfires and there was fire everywhere. And the reality is, you know, in, in New York City right now, folks aren't having to worry about their business or their apartment or what have you being consumed by wildfire. They're having to worry about the smoke, but that, you know, one of the components with the wildfire smoke issue and, and the exposure to smoke and the reason for the need for preparedness and for an emergency action plan is that fire may be outside your door. That's the point, right? It's, it, it's a it's a real tangible exposure in some situations where there there might actually be the 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 fire with the smoke. In any event, the emergency action plan, the the very first item identified under the EAP, according to OSHA, is that you've got to identify the conditions that activate the plan. So what OSHA proposes is there are two conditions that would activate the plan. One is actual exposure to flames, and two. Uh, exposure to airborne um, contamination, right? Uh, and and when OSHA is evaluating the airborne portion of it, which again is going to be the focus of, of most of this, uh, they go and they look at the EPA's air quality index, the AQI, to determine the, the status of the air. After they identify the conditions, they identify actual exposure to fire. They identify exposure to airborne hazards. Uh, then they start looking at chain of command and who's going to implement the plan once a need to implement uh, is, is identified. Thereafter, they have specific evacuation procedures if they're trying to escape the fire. Or in some cases, you might have sheltering in place if the hazard is the airborne hazard, right? Um, and so EAPs, um, and OSHA has been telling this for years, EAPs need to not only have evacuation routes, but EAPs need to have shelter locations uh, in Texas and states around Texas. When we talk about sheltering, we're often talking about sheltering from what? Tornadoes and in your neck of the woods, hurricanes. Uh, although, you know, hurricanes kind of like uh, wildfires and wildfire smoke, you, you ought to have a little extra time to evacuate. But in the event you don't, there, there should be areas for sheltering in place. And uh, in the event that that wildfire smoke gets too great for individuals working outside, then there, there has to be some types of contingencies for that, according to OSHA. Uh, and culminating, the EAP culminates, of course, in identifying any personal protective equipment. And we'll talk about N95s here in just a minute at length. Uh, and, uh, and then the training requirements, you've got to review the plan with workers and, and ideally you, you practice and you rehearse with workers. Now, Frank, you have some personal experience relative to kind of this preparedness piece and the response piece relative to wildfire as a whole. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that experience with our audience to kind of give them a flavor of your experience and background and you know, I've spent much of my life living up in the mountains, up in a, in Warfano County in South Central Colorado. But I, I worked up there uh, all through college during the summers as a as a wrangler, right? Where we actually took people on tours of the Front Range Mountains. And about my second summer in, every one of us uh, that was part of the wrangler crew decided we wanted to to all be uh, the greatest American hero and 
and we went and we volunteered with uh, the local volunteer fire department. Uh, some of us with more success than others. Uh, unfortunately, I was one of the others because I was only a seasonal employee and they were really looking for folks to be there uh, for the full year. But got a lot of experience in in preparedness and how to address fires that were actually encroaching and and, and what to do um, in terms of sheltering in place should you be engulfed in flame or smoke. It was it was good training and very interesting. Since that time, I maintained my contact with the fire department up there, and one of the things we were trying to do, and we did throughout the entire community is we eliminated the the small brush and the the smaller trees because the small brush and small trees act as ladders to move fires into the canopy. And once a fire reaches the canopy, like it's reached in Quebec and other parts of Canada, uh, I think British Columbia, once a fire reaches the canopy of a forest, it's virtually impossible to fight. You can't fight it from the ground, right? Because it's it's above your head 60 to 100 feet. You can only fight it from the air, and and that's barely practical. Practical. You really have to count on, on an increase in humidity and rain to help put it down, or you build fire lines. But we won't go into that. I'll get very nerdy talking about this because it's pretty interesting to me and strikes really close to home. Uh, that's my experience. You you have experience from the air, though. Uh, my experience is being a, a, a grunt on the ground. Yours experience is in the air. Yeah, I, I've been fortunate enough for about 20 years to represent companies that work in the space that is aerial firefighting, uh, primarily what are referred to as seats, single engine air tankers. You're right. I mean, once it gets into the canopy, it becomes very, very difficult. And there's a whole host of health and safety issues that are associated with fighting fire. It's, it's an interesting topic. And, and you know, let, let's kind of keep moving on a little bit with respect to the topic and, 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 you know, other than the, the requirement relative to emergency action plans and, and preparedness, you know, are there other issues that an employer, whether they're actually in what I'm going to characterize as the danger zone, the fire danger zone, or whether they're outside the fire danger zone, are there other standards that could apply to an employer who has employees who are working in poor air quality? In poor, let me add one more thing about the uh, the assessment of the area. Uh, OSHA also references the Haswopper standard in terms of preparedness and advises that employers that have uh, hazardous chemicals that could be exposed to to wildfires need to look at uh, developing uh, compliance avenues uh, with regard to the Haswopper standard and and pre and post cleanup or pre and post control of, of, of any of those types of hazards under 1910.120. Uh, I just wanted to put that out there because that is one of the items identified by OSHA. Is there anything under the Haswopper standard that applies to the wildfire smoke itself? I, I think it's fair because there can be chemicals released through a wildfire and that that can become a respiratory hazard itself. I, I, I get where you're leading me, John. Thank you for that. Uh, sometimes I need it spelled out more. So yeah, yeah there is possibility of exposure to, uh, to chemicals released through one of these events that can become part of the wildfire smoke. And unfortunately, you might not know it, uh, depending on what your location is, if it's not your release, if it's not your company that's releasing it. But if you are U.S.-based and 
your property is exposed to a fire uh, that could contact hazardous chemicals or hazardous substances and release those into the air, then you have a responsibility um, pre-fire to try to, to control and reduce that exposure and that release. That's an OSHA expectation. That's an EPA expectation. Before we shift completely away from the preparedness piece, are there any other takeaways you want to give our audience relative to preparedness? I think the highlights that OSHA espouses on their webpage are develop a plan, ensure that workers know what to do in case of an emergency, aka training. And as with any emergency access plan, uh, OSHA likes you to to rehearse, uh, practice escaping, practice uh, sheltering in place. And then learn from those experiences, uh, learn from those practice events. If things don't go perfectly, then find a way to try to make them more perfect. That's, uh, that's what OSHA advises on their website as, as takeaway elements. And those all seem to be pretty commonsensical. I mean, it's not a shock that if you're having to worry about a wildfire consuming you know, your place of employment, place of business, you know, having some preparation relative to, you know, things like fire drills, you know, which is functionally what we're talking about, that, that would make a lot of sense. Uh, let's shift gears just a little bit. You'd mentioned earlier, Frank, uh, you know, AQI, and you'd also mentioned that we talked a little bit about respiratory protection, or actually, I think you said we'd talk a fair amount about respiratory protection. But let's shift gears relative to respiratory protection. Is there a recommendation relative to wildfire smoke? that respiratory protection be used? And if there is, what type of respiratory protection should be used and and under what circumstances should it be used? So OSHA uh, uh, directs folks from their website in terms of response to FEMA's website uh, that that lists some action items once there's a belief that there may be some exposure to uh, hazardous air. Uh, Of course, the first one and the most obvious one is they say pay attention to the weather, pay attention to any alerts coming out, and then monitor the air quality. The Environmental Protection Agency does the air quality index, the AQI. I, I imagine everybody listening to this podcast has seen the AQI uh, come up on every news media outlet uh, that's that's available. I see it all the time. The uh, the AQI identifying what is what is healthy and what is unhealthy. Uh, you know, so the AQI has these ranges, zero to 50 is considered good, 51 to 100 is considered moderate, 101 to 150 is considered unhealthy for sensitive groups, anything above 151 is considered unhealthy. And that uh, for all em- employees under the federal uh, the federal interpretation of, uh, of, of what an employer should be paying attention to, that 151 AQI is where federal OSHA uh, starts uh, taking a position that employers uh, need to make some analyses and put into place some protections for employees that are exposed to an AQI of 151 or above. Now, there may be other considerations for employees in the unhealthy for sensitive groups, air range, 101 to 150, eggshell skull, you take the employees, you find them, so you may have to make accommodations for those individuals that are exposed in that range. But at 151, Federal OSHA advises that employers need to be taking some corrective action. And, and there's multiple pathways th- that they recommend in that regard. Are there any pathways with regard to the corrective action beyond simply having folks put an N95 on? 
Yeah, so federal OSHA certainly says, look, if you're going to be working outside in those unhealthy air environments, then the expectation is that employees are provided uh, some type of respiratory protection. Uh, we learned during the pandemic that a face mask may not be the most effective way to filter out particulates, a surgical style mask, that is, uh, and that an N95 is the more effective way to filter out those particulates. And that is the specific recommendation of OSHA um, is that employers evaluate the use of an N95 mask. Of course, when we're going down our hierarchy of ways to uh, prevent employee exposure, you start with eliminating the hazard, right? Uh, and that's long before you get to using personal protective equipment like a respirator. And so one of the ways that OSHA suggests you can eliminate that employee exposure is to, to move work indoors. Uh, if that's possible, uh, and try to close off the rooms and the environment inside from the environment outside. Uh, they also even suggest the use of high efficiency filters, uh, maybe used in an air conditioning system or even the portable HEPA. It, it sounds very familiar for those of you who were responding to uh, to COVID in the workplace as to the type of filtration system uh, and the type of indoor protection to protect people working indoors from the contaminants outside uh, that, that we saw in response to, to, the, to the COVID and the, the NEP, the, the uh, temporary emphasis program. But that there may also need to be some adjustments relative to kind of the pace of work, the intensity of work, the amount of monitoring of employees and their overall condition during these events where folks are now having to wear N95s to do their work out of doors, looking at how hot it is outside and, you know, now adding the additional respiratory burden of, of using an N95. I'm assuming that you would agree with me, generally speaking, that while the N95 may be kind of the, you know, PPE of choice or the P maybe the only PPE of, of resort, that there's other things that employers, because employees are now working outdoors with N95s on, may need to be looking at relative to the overall health and safety of their employees. Yeah, I, I think that that's a fair assessment because obviously wearing respiratory protection is does in, increase uh, in, increase the burdens on individuals, especially depending on the type of of respiratory protection, and it does increase the burden on breathing. Even a simple N95 can increase the burden on breathing. You know, I think maybe the the more efficient way to answer that question, though, is to cheat a little bit and look at what, for instance, California has done uh, with regard to their expectations on employers. Why would I look at California? Because candidly, I feel like federal OSHA does a lot of looking at what California does and says, hmm, that's kind of a good idea. Maybe we'll enforce it that way. So when you're talking about AQI for California, for instance, the use of respiratory protection using an N95 uh, between 151, between the AQI of 151 up to 500, the employers in that state are required to provide an N95 for voluntary use. Above 500 is where mandatory respirator use, is where uh, N95s are required as above an AQI of 500. And uh, along with that becomes the obligations of the respiratory protection program, right? So whenever an employer is requiring versus 
allowing employees to voluntarily wear respiratory protection, that's when you get into the, uh, the other requirements of uh, the respiratory protective standard. And uh, if an employer requires N95s to be worn, uh, then if, in other words, if I'm an employer and I say you must wear an N95 mask to do your work, uh, then that, uh, that employer under the standard is expected to maintain a written program to conduct a medical evaluation, to do fit testing, and to do employee training on, on the respiratory protection program and the benefits and uses of an N95. If, however, a, uh, it's only a, a voluntary program and you're maintaining those, the employer is maintaining those N95s for voluntary use, then there's an appendix to the respiratory protection standard. It's called Appendix D. And if the employer is going to allow voluntary use of an N95 mask, then they just the employer needs to make sure that the employees all have had a chance to read and review Appendix D uh, that summarizes uh, essentially what would be in an, uh, a written training program for uh, N95s. I feel like I wandered a little bit away from your specific question, but I felt like I needed to get that point in. Uh, and and splice it to a little bit of what goes on in, in other jurisdictions like California. Well, Frank, we're, we're reaching the time in this podcast where, you know, for the sake of our audience, uh, we're going to wind it down and, and, and spare them having to listen to your voice or my voice much longer. Um, but in, in closing, I wanted to touch base on something that hits a little close to home to me, which is kind of the vulnerable population. You know, as you know, I've got very severe asthma and you know, ir- irritants like wildfire smoke, um, the Saharan dust that we normally see this time of year, et cetera, kind of wreak havoc on my asthma. Do employers have any obligation or any special obligation to employees that have that type of vulnerability who are susceptible to kind of greater than average risks relative to exposures to whether it be wildfire smoke, Saharan dust, or whatever other irritant is in the air? Uh, well, again, under the general duty clause for the OSH Act, uh, there's an expectation that employers will provide a safe workplace free of recognized hazards uh, for all employees. And that would include sensitive group employees. There is a little bit of a rub, though, because when you start talking about allergens as opposed to or or irritants uh, as opposed to uh, recognized hazards, uh, you know, classically mold is one of those. Uh, OSHA, I haven't seen OSHA enforce the standards even in a general duty clause situation to the same degree as they do in a recognized situation. For instance, when you reach that 151 or greater. Uh, for uh, in the AQI. What does come into play isn't the appropriate subject of this podcast, but what definitely comes into play is the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, as amended um, and, um, and employers would have an obligation under that act to comply and to evaluate the employee's condition and whether there's an appropriate accommodation to be given in that situation. Uh, but we'll, we'll leave that for another day. Frank. As always, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking some time and sharing with our audience and myself your thoughts. And uh, I hope you have a great weekend.
I appreciate it. You too, John. Good talking to you again. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.